Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. We at the podcast are checking in first just to make sure you're all doing okay and staying safe. And if you or someone you know has fallen ill with the virus, that we hope that you make a full and speedy recovery. We're all thinking about you. Today on the show, we have an important and very, very interesting guest. We have Roshan Carney. She is an award-winning writer, director, and producer who returned to filming after taking time out with her three children. She has an interest highlighting social issues. Her short pilot, The Family Way, a comedy exploring an unexpected pregnancy, and also a film called No Dogs, a one-minute short highlighting child homelessness, are available on YouTube. Her latest film, Patty, which explores racism and identity in 1970s London, is currently in post-production. The way I came to find out about Roshan Kearney and her wonderful work was that I was lucky enough to be able to go to an Irish film festival that was here in Los Angeles. I was taken by my cousin Hillary and her husband, Morris Murphy, who was born and raised in Ireland. And the films were quite incredible. And I did say at the end, I really want to be able to talk to the person who has made this short film run that was part of the festival. And it happened. I'm grateful to Roshan, of course, for her time on this episode and also for next week's when we continue our conversation. But a special shout out to my cousins Hillary and Morris for making the connection. The show Run, which is extremely powerful, was written and directed by Roshan and Carolyn Grace Cassidy to highlight the signs of coercive control after legislation was passed to make coercive control and emotional abuse a crime in Ireland. Its next screening will be at the Flying Broom International Film Festival, flyingbroom.org, in association with Dublin Feminist Film Festival, which you can find online at Dublin Feminist Film Festival between May 7th and 14th, 2020. Here's Russian now. Well, welcome everybody to this wonderful and exciting interview I get to do today with Roisin Kearney. And I have been in touch with her and she has been lovely enough to be open to speaking with me from far away today, which she will talk about. Um, And so I just wanted to say that I became interested because I went to this Irish film festival here in Los Angeles invited by my cousin Hillary and her lovely husband, Morris Murphy. And I saw this short film called Run. And right after I saw it, I turned to my cousins and I said, ooh, that really hit home. That was a film where I could envision a lot of my clients' experiences, some of my own experiences. And I said, I would love to be able to have someone involved with that film speak on the podcast and it's happening today. <laughs> so please introduce yourself and then we'll go from there. 
Hi, my name's Roisin Kearney and I am a filmmaker based in Dublin in Ireland. Um, I went back, I previously worked in a lot of theatre and then some film, I went back to filmmaking about four and a half years ago, um, three young kids, so they got old enough to be able to run off and do a little bits and pieces. And Run is actually my fifth short film, which seems like a lot. Yeah, myself and Caroline Grace Casty, who's my co-writer, director on it, had been discussing coming together. We've known each other a long time and we've been discussing coming together to make a short film. We initially sat down and said, oh, we'll make a comedy because both of us do a lot of comedy writing. And then as things went on, there was a change in the law here to do with coercive control. It was included within the laws under domestic violence. And there'd been some horrendous cases and the more we talked about it and the more we chatted about our experiences, friends' experiences, people we knew experiences, the more we felt, well, no, we need to make something that really shows signs of coercive control that are very clear. Someone can watch and recognize those signs and hopefully either change their behavior mm -hmm. or talk to someone they may see in that sort of relationship and just to acknowledge the fact that it is and it is now a crime in Ireland as well so mm -hmm. that thing behind it so we both cut we'd both written about course control previous to that um I'd written a short film and then which went on into a play called being Mary Murphy which was about this character who it was it is a comedy um who talks about her ex-husband who's dumped her for a girl down the bookies and then, but as you get to know her a little bit more and as she describes her relationship, you realise that actually what she was in was, of course, a controlling situation, a financial controlling situation. And she doesn't realise that herself because so swept up in it that she did, but the audience would be able to see that as it went through. And Caroline has one of her eight books <laughs> um but the week I read my life which she'd written a few years previous and again lead character in that again it was a separation and it's quite a comic book it's good fun even though it's quite dark in places but again when you read through it she was in a course of controlling relationship so it just kind of made us see how we've written these characters without even knowing we know the relationship but we didn't know what it was called and we didn't know that side until more recently I don't think it's not like people knew and they know those relationships you look around your friends your family everyone's seen them but up until this point certainly for me and for her we didn't have a name to put on that relationship so I think that's why we felt we should make it and it was something that was important right and so uh something that I talk about on this podcast a lot is getting the words to use to be able to say ah that that was the technique used on me, or that's that personality disorder that causes people to treat people that way. It sort of helps you take it off of yourself uh, because it seems that what happens when you come out of these relationships, you have been so used to blaming yourself or being blamed for things that if you can suddenly say, oh no, that was a technique used on me, and that's what that personality disorder needs to do to other people in order to feed their ego or whatever else. So it wasn't not my fault. I didn't cause that person to treat me this way, per se. It's, 
it's inordinately empowering, but also very clarifying. Yeah. And then kind of easier, uh, one would think, to then know what to watch out for, although that's a whole other step because a lot of people, right, get out of these relationships and then kind of into others. Have you noticed that too, that there's a pattern with a lot of people? It is, and it's, I mean, they often say that people who are most susceptible to ending up in a course of controlling relationship are people who are the most caring because they're the people who want to make things better. So that's kind of used against them almost. And those subtle little hopes and disagreements or things that are used because they because they want to fix things. You know, so someone might say to them, oh, you know, that the dinner is a bit of a mess. Oh, they're automatically, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I rushed it. They're, they're more attentive to be, just really care about others and be gentle and soft and have that um empathy that they want to make things better for the people around them and unfortunately that can be turned on them which is probably the best quality a human being can have which is what's so hurtful about it and what's so horrendous about it that it uh, it is nicest and the most genuine and the most loving of people that sometimes are the people who end up in that situation so right um, sometimes people who are empathic or go by the sort of more modern term empath, uh, which, um, which is interesting because I think some people do it because they're empaths. Some people just do it because they're sort of used to playing that role in relationship, um, and being subordinate and being the caretaker, or maybe that's what they raise like, right? So there are a lot of reasons that people get into this, but do you feel that people who control those who are empathic or who are dutiful, let's say, that they they search out certain traits and and what do you think they look for in other people? Because I just I know I just asked ask you a question and I'm jumping in before you get to answer it, so that's great interview style. But um, an example that I had given a couple months ago on the show was something that somebody had told me that. Um, that he was actually someone who was controlling. He had learned to be that way through his father. And he said that sometimes he would purposely bump into people. And if they apologized, he knew that then he could take advantage of them because it was his fault, but they felt bad. Uh, so there were some things in particular where people get tested, you know? And so I'm just wondering about that. Yeah, it's definitely, so because I mean, it, the classics are the love bombing first and foremost. So, you know, it's wonderful to be love bombed. You know, it's a wonderful feeling that, especially if someone is vulnerable. So they're the most attentive. They gifts at the door, do anything for them. And that feel is wonderful. Now, one of the situations and one of the things that I've come across previously is, um, oh, he always picks me up if I'm having a night out because he doesn't want me getting a taxi. Now, that ostensibly is, you know, a nice thing. He picks me up because he doesn't want me getting a taxi. But in reality, it is in that in the circumstance. Now, not all the time, obviously, but in the circumstance is it's a form of control because he wants to know where she is, who she's with and what time she's leaving at. And it's far less to do with being caring and more to do with having that knowledge and that control, you know, and and the slow build up from there, which can be really, I've heard it 
people who've ended up in the situation after a month and I've you know other people it's been a year you know it can take different lengths of time but um it's that going from the love bombing and you're the most wonderful person I've ever met and then if there is a backing off it's like but I can't live without you what am I going to do without you so this whole thing of them be the person that they want to be which then continues it on into so it's it is psychological abuse and it's a way of um drawing people in and yeah I can completely understand where you're saying about the thing of bumping into someone and waiting to see if they're apologized it's a very simple test and, and it, once people realize they've been tested I mean it's so insulting and it really you know makes people very angry once they find that out there's this other piece that just as you were talking, I was remembering that when somebody says, oh, no, no, I'll come pick you up. Um, and it, so then they can be in charge. There's this sense that somehow the other person can't be trusted, even though they're usually the trustworthy ones in the relationship. So there's so many things that get turned right around. And have you noticed that, that the qualities that are true for the controller are put on the other person as sort of these diagnoses that are just false, like totally redirected. One of the things that I'd often see is say a relationship going out. And I'm just, just for this instance, I'm saying the guy is the controller, the female mm-hmm. is. And um, the, their partner, the woman they're with would be, you know, dressed up and all the rest and clothing and, you know, wearing, you know, looking really, really well and walk into a room. And uh, which he has actually said, you know, oh, I think you should wear this. It's amazing. And, but then as the night goes on, it's like, oh, why? Why are you turning that way? Or you're liking all the attention. And so they have actually made, created the situation. Then poke holes, poking mm-hmm. at it. Oh, well, mm-hmm. you're only here because you want all the attention. And, you know, you're interrupting me and, you know, you're making my friends look at you and you're doing this and you're doing that. And it's actually nothing to do. You know, they have dictated how the evening will go. But yet the abusee is the one who goes home feeling guilty. Yes. And when you were just saying that you're interrupting me, uh, yes, yes, yes. Thousand times yes. That I found that people who are controllers uh, pontificate. Uh, and they will feel that it's their duty to, to sort of guide you and teach you and give you all these life instructions. And also weave a story so that they get the response that they need, either, you know, that they were getting accolades about something or they're the victim in the story. But it can go on for a very long time. And it seems then that there's no time left for you to talk about your day, to say, you know what, actually, we've been talking now for, or you've been talking now for four hours. I'm hungry. I got to, like, I have the life. And whenever they jump in, they're interrupting or they're being rude. It's so interesting. That happens all the time. I hadn't thought about that, but it's so true. And even if it comes to describing things, like you'd sit there and listen to an hour of such and such at work today, but then you try and return and say, oh yeah, well, this happened to me. It's like, oh, and it's ignored. Because mm-hmm. what your life and your work doesn't actually matter to them. Right. I mean, I've even heard people say that, you know, did I ask you? Did I ask you about your day? Are you, are you done listening? Do you not care about my day? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's actually quite uncomfortable 
and this is something I wanted to talk about with the film. Uh, it's uncomfortable to be the other couple or the other person in an environment where you see that going on. And so I wanted, there's so many other subjects I want to be able to cover, but I, I wanted to also be able to talk about the film itself. And I really encourage people to go out and see it wherever they can or to show it at a festival if they're running a festival, if they know of one of, you know, have it be uh, something that people can see and uh, for wide distribution. I think it really is. It's so beautifully done uh, in its power, but also in its subtlety. Uh, I think that there are so many symbolic pieces uh, like about the shoes and about, I don't want to give away too much, but, um, but it has, it ties in with run. I'm sure. Uh, but also just that there are other people there witnessing that. And so tell me about that part of the story. Why was that an important piece to include? For me, it's, well, in film in general, just as a writer and someone who creates a, I am, I know it sounds insane when I wrote, <laughs> wrote a film about force of control, but I love seeing good men on my screen. Do you know what I mean? So the second couple there, his character, the second man's character, is a good man. And that's what I want to see more. And because I do kind of sometimes feel like the only male characters I'm seeing are really quite aggressive and not very nice and that can drip down into society whether we like it or not and yes the story may be interesting this that and I can find it incredibly fascinating myself but I love seeing good men on screen because mm -hmm. I think it's a really positive thing and um, his character is the juxtaposition obviously to the other person's character and it was for two reasons the whole story along the lines of, for I mean, obviously within a short and in one evening, which is where it's set, a whole lot has to happen to get from one one end to the other. So you're you're condensing a lot of what would happen a person maybe over months into a very short space of time, and by bringing her best friend who hasn't been around for a long period of time in, it allows her to see what change has been made in her over a period of time because for her to notice her personality change which is what has actually happened she's become again I won't give away too much but you know through it like she's not working her own job anymore she's not doing the stuff she used to love anymore she's not hanging around with her friends anymore she's not seeing people things like that um, and again I think it's as a female your best girl pal that you've had since you were a child is a person that knows every ounce of you, that can read you like a book, that almost senses things without having to be there, without even having to pick up the phone. Something just clicks and they just know. And um, so her appearing and arriving in, um, her the abuser's character, first of all, this is very uncomfortable, but as a lot of the tip narcissist, which he is in, within it, is... Um, incredibly charming you know able to win people over everyone thinks he's a great guy and successful and brilliant and da, da, da. but his charm isn't working so as that doesn't work he uses other methods basically to try and get rid of them out of the house 
for good because he just doesn't want them to be back again. Because often what will happen if they can't control a relationship with someone or if someone is coming in, they will use ultimate charm. So therefore they become the good person and the person who's been abused is mad or is, you know, doesn't know what's going on or isn't very clever or isn't this or isn't that. So use all these things against them. Whereas in this situation, the friend, because she hasn't been around for a good while, he doesn't have the ability to be able to control the situation like he would normally. So he uses tactics to try and drive her away for good, which I've seen as well. You know, if there's someone that has the sauce on them, they will try and get rid of them out of their partner's lives and use whatever means are necessary to get rid of them out of it because they don't want that person talking and acknowledging that the relationship is bad. Right. So then that makes me think about just all of the isolation that takes place in these situations and also how many stories you're not allowed to tell. That happens quite often, right? That the person who's doing this to you doesn't want anyone else to know. But of course, they want people to have you, um, well, they want you to tell people how wonderful they are. But any any of their faults or any of their bad behavior, you have to keep to yourself. And so people just don't have a sense of it. And I, I think sometimes people are happy when they see in their controlling or abusive partner that the facade is kind of breaking away and it gives other people a way to see what they know to be true about that person. It's actually very relieving when they lose their shit in front of somebody else or something. Uh, I, I, you know, people have told me they feel a sense of safety and calm. Like it's not just my secret uh, and I'm not having to experience this alone. Um, and that's, that's a very powerful thing to suddenly feel like you're now reconnecting again, or you have the chance to not have to be suffering alone. Yeah. And I think that's an important thing as well in, because unfortunately what can often follow that is huge aggression. You know, if they lose their shit in front of someone else, they will blame the partner. That's your fault. You made me do it. You made, but even at that I can see why there would be relief within it because one of the things they're very good at making people do is feel like they're mad, feel like they're seeing things and not real. And um, because it's so so insidious and a lot of times it's small that like, oh, I just imagine that or, you know, and purposely doing stuff to make people feel like they're not in their right mind. I mean, that would be quite common as well, you know. Um, moving things, throwing things out, whatever it takes to make them feel like, oh, I'm not, I'm confused or I must be confused or there's something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That whole uh, idea of gaslighting that can make you feel crazy, make you not trust yourself. And that that also seems to be something that controller likes to share with people, you know, oh, she was so confused and she didn't remember this or that. And she didn't know where she put this, you know, without me, she would just be so lost and et cetera, et cetera. And and I have to suffer through having somebody who is so spacey and, but I stand by her anyway, you know, it's the whole creation of this diagnosis and speaking about diagnoses, 
there are a lot of people in these situations who develop situational anxiety or situational depression. And then they're kind of blamed by the person for not being fun anymore or something, but it, it was again, crafted. Uh, and they're so relieved, I think, when they get out to have the, the life come back to them and to not feel depressed and anxious. Is that something that you've found? Definitely. And it's, I mean, it's one of those things I think that can happen in, like when you, when you see these things, especially after the birth of a child or something like that, that um, it's, you know, there's a level of blame, you know, because there's a jealousy there. And sometimes you see a jealousy of a child, you know, it's like, oh, well, all your time is just spent. You, you, you know, you don't give me the time anymore. And so you're in this situation where there is a new human being in your lives, but the adult partner is saying, is jealous of them, is jealous of them and the relationship that is there. And just really quite a childish attitude to have. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like being another child. Yeah. And um, it's, I think, one of those things that, but again, people can be guilted out of it. And part of that thing, like you were saying, um, you know, creating anxiety in a person, telling others, oh, well, you know, they're always forgetting this. Or it's building a profile so that people don't look at that anxiety and think that's because of abuse. If they can build this profile around person with people they know and say, oh, well, this happened yesterday or, you know, or she reversed into a pole or, you know, the clutch has got, you know, different little bits and pieces. They create a narrative in the world around that person so they don't have anyone to turn to. And then if anxiety and all the rest happens no one's that surprised they're like oh yeah he told he said he told us no he told us yeah she was a bit depressed or he told us that she was forgetting very forgetful or so create the world right it's it's quite incredible how sophisticated it all is and and i think this head spinning part among other things is that when you're sort of more empathic or caretaker, you're not um, strategically minded, typically. You'll assume what's true for you is true for other people. Um, you won't know until later on, unless you know what to watch out for, uh, that someone's playing you. Reminding me of the diagnosis Munchausen by proxy, you know, making a child sick and then, oh, my poor child and everyone, right. It, and I hadn't really thought of the connection to that until this moment when you were talking about that, of making somebody not well and then having it benefit you in these situations too. That's really fascinating. Yeah. I, I'm i wondering, you know, you, you were mentioning um, a little bit about a, a change happening in Ireland a few years ago with, you know, things becoming illegal that hadn't been before. And I'm wondering if you can just sort of take us through that cultural piece for people who are not familiar with what ha what has happened there. Well, I suppose that one of the things and one of the reasons this film was written, because historically Ireland has not been the best on women's rights, full stop, as you might know. With the marriage bar up until the 70s, so once you got married, you couldn't work in the civil service. So you had to leave your job. Um, even prior to that, when Children's Allowance was first brought in, um, even though the doll at the time, like the government at the time, 
a lot were saying, you know, it should be paid to the mother. And they actually didn't. And they decided it would be paid to the father, which was, you know, which meant that women were not allowed work, didn't have an income and didn't even get their children's allowance. So left them completely financially um, vulnerable. And then there was certainly an attitude of, which, you know, like with Magdalene laundries and women being put in Magdalene laundries, babies being taken off them and um, being sold, a lot of whom were sold off to the States. Um, all these things that happened, it was incredibly bad history for women. And then marriage bar was lifted in 73, but which was great. So people were able to go back to work, but there was um, a major disparity in wages between men and women, which done still kind of does to a certain extent um then abortion birth control was illegal of all kinds so no contraception and no abortion then contraception only became available in the 90s now it was available by prescription <laughs> if you went to your doctor with your husband and sat there you'd be doled out a prescription but only if it was a situation where you would die if you had another pregnancy, you know. Um, then in the 80s, the Eighth Amendment was brought in, which made uh, the life of the mother equal to that of a fetus, which resulted in very, very, very tragic things over the years um, of women dying because they weren't able to have an abortion. And... That was finally lifted, anyway, <laughs> a couple of years ago, which was a huge relief to people and now this year well the start of last year the start of uh, 2019 finally um coercive control and financial abuse became part of the books for domestic violence which it hadn't been before here now we would be one of the few who do have it but it was a huge step forward um of men and women in those situations and it was it was brought in over in England in 2015 there hasn't been a huge number of prosecutions because it is quite difficult and there's a lot of tracking and dates and stuff sadly for America it was withdrawn as part of your domestic violence laws last April so the only form of abuse that is now illegal in America is physical violence coercive control and financial abuse and all the other types that were there um, were removed last April, which is incredibly frightening for the women's rights groups, particularly over there, domestic violence groups, because it is so prevalent. And like the numbers are, it's 16 million women, 16 million women a year are victims of domestic abuse. And that is presumably, because I think from what I know, it's the most recent under physical abuse under the actual beating, which is, it's very, I find it very frightening because to me, domestic abuse is nearly the ground zero of all violence. If you look back and go through, and I've, which I've done a lot, and I mean, people can look for themselves, but for all sorts of other violent crime, you'll usually find that there has been a complaint of domestic violence first. So if domestic violence was dealt with, you wouldn't be leading on to these other violent crimes. And then 
the fallout is mental health, is homelessness, is all these other things that are so tragic and so um, disrupting to the world and to life in general. A, such a large proportion come back again to domestic violence. Like it really is something that if it was, if the education is there, and I have seen some programs, actually there are some good programs that are going on in some of the schools over there um, to teach relate it's about teaching relationship and what is a normal relationship because obviously if people have been brought up in a household where there's domestic violence or coercive control or abuse that becomes normal and so their expectation into their future is and it makes them either more it makes them more vulnerable at either side of being abusive or becoming the victim of abuse so it's incredibly important that the education is there, and particularly around coercive control, because that is the beginning of all forms of domestic violence. It's, it's never a situation where it's, things come out of nowhere. There's always a level of coercive control and abuse prior to physical. And of, of, well, I don't know about the stats there, but certainly here, um, a lot of the situations where women have ended up dead have been not necessarily cases of traditional domestic violence as in beatings. They have been coercive control because it is the mentality, if I can't have you, no one can have you. And that's really what it comes down to. Um, and you see it a lot, certainly in, um, you know, in countries where there's acid attacks and things like that where women are attacked with acid and again it's often that if you look into it it's often that well if I can't have you no one's going to have you and no one will want you so and that's one of the things where a huge number of women are in horrendous situations and like it's I just feel that if it's so if it could be if it could be brought in if people could be taught the science really early and know what is normal and what's not not normal it would take one generation basically to wipe it out more or less because it would become so unacceptable and people would just know they'd be able to click in and see the signs and it wouldn't become such a horrendous situation as it has become now I mean, we're in a sit where one in three women in Ireland have been in a domestic abusive relationship. And the stats are the same. Well, the, the statistics are the same over there. I think it's one in three or one in three point something. So it's so widespread that um, it just can't be ignored anymore. It's the biggest killer of women worldwide. Domestic violence. That's, there's nothing else more prevalent in the death of women than domestic violence, and which is frightening. So, and thank you for all of that information. Just also about what's happening and what has happened in Ireland, and also how we've gone backwards in the United States. It's so it's so terribly disappointing because you were so much. You were the gold standard. You know, you were what everyone else wanted to have you know and England went there in 2015 and we went there last year like and it was so strange because it was only when I made the film that I researched it more like I obviously knew prior to that that coercive control was in the state 
But um, and then when I start before I was coming over the first time, because when I came over, Irish Street America, um, brought the film over and showed it in New York and in LA. And it was only when I was leading up to the time going over that I went back and looked through and researched, and I actually it could have blown me over. I was so shocked that it was let go. You know, it just it was very very disappointing. Right. And, and it doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know how it helps anything in anywhere or even financially or anything. I don't, I don't understand except just to sort of make some sort of statement about people's rights and how important they are and safeguards and making people, I think, feel they're on their own, um, which is a terrible, terrible feeling. When you're talking about uh, abuse and force of control, I know that they are, uh, they overlap and then they also have distinct differences. And so if you wanted to talk a little bit about that, because there is such subtlety and I think because the police don't know how to interpret if there aren't bruises, uh, if there isn't blood, right? God forbid, but still, they, they might not pick up on the signs that you would pick up on. Like if, if one partner is asked a question and the other one answers it for them all the time, or they, I, I one time gave an example of a couple who came in and she was saying that her, her boyfriend is very controlling of her and uh, he was trying to let me know that he wasn't by coming in and sort of proving something about himself. But I knew right away when he sat down next to her and didn't put his arm around her shoulder, but kind of curled it around her neck. And I thought, oh, you know, like, if he could squeeze at any moment to remind her what to say, what not to say, it was this overpowering, quote unquote, sort of hug. So in those subtle moments, you can pick up on things if you know what to watch out for. So if you can kind of clarify what coercive control is and how it's the same and also different from abuse. Well, I mean, nearly all abuse, physical or emotional or mental, all starts out the same way and coercive control is one of you know it is always part of it at some point of all forms when someone's life is so controlled that they are no longer allowed as an autonomous person make decisions for themselves in their own best interests it doesn't matter who they are it doesn't matter there was a you know it can literally happen to anybody male or female it's more common in that it happens to females it is, it's, it's bullying and manipulation, I suppose. And I think, you know, I mean, we know that cases are brought up in work situations about bullying and it's virtually the same thing, you know? So it's, you know, allowing that, I suppose, I, I think that's probably the best way of describing it. It's about really seeing and believing. I mean, financial control, I suppose, is probably a little bit easier to see and take note of. And it's, often that how much you're spending and what you're spending it on is checked. That bank accounts checked and monitored. Um, where you go are giving an allowance. And I think it's something that always bothers me is when people are called, um, well, certainly when I was called a girl when I was like 40, <laughs> you know, it's like, no, I think you'll find I'm no longer a girl. I'm actually a woman now. But um, that uh, 
treating a partner as you would a child. You know, what you're allowed to do, what you're not allowed to do, and where you're allowed to go, and who you're allowed to see, and who you're allowed to talk to, and how much money you're allowed in your pocket. I mean, that is basically what it is. Um, in, I mean, what they recommend here certainly is, because a lot of the time it does come up in a various ways, so financial control and other things will be part and parcel of it. And I know here they would say that it is to take notes of very specific circumstances as things go on. And nobody should feel they're walking on eggshells in their life. You shouldn't come home and feel like you might say the wrong thing. There is no such thing as saying the wrong thing in a normal relationship. You know, you can come home and say, I'm in a fowler. That's not, you know, that's a normal conversation to have. But that if people are scared about upsetting the person with really normal things, um, I think it's a real signature to people, you know, that there's something not right. Um, but here, what they say, what they're saying, I mean, it, there's no, there hasn't been a case yet, which is, you know, because presumably it's something that will build, but it is taking notes. This, a lot of the helplines and a lot of the groups suggest, um, certainly if someone needs to get out of the relationship because it is the most dangerous time for a woman in particular is when they're actually leaving the relationship. It's the it's the most dangerous time for them as an individual. So they, you know, they give a huge amount of advice about you know trying to put a little bit of money away if they can, getting a second phone with a throwaway SIM card, telling a few people if they can, you know, of families and friends, uh, telling saying it in work, and they are trying to bring in um, the two weeks. So in basically. If you're escaping a, a domestic violence situation where you get two weeks off work. So putting all these things in place. But it, it's really it's really keeping a diary, taking notes, letting people know um, the situation that they're in. And I don't know how the first prosecution is going to look because it hasn't happened yet. But I think very much like if so, you were going in to make a complaint about bullying in the workplace, I think it's... Much of it, much of it is going to be the same thing. It'll, it will count on being a good administrator and keeping notes of all the things that have happened over a period of time. And I mean, it's something that is we certainly hear. It's one of the things that come up is, um, and it's been now. Obviously, it's a situation that does happen, but the idea of parent alienation is coming up a lot which is used sometimes in separations where an abuser wants to continue control. And so they will look look for access, then not show up, um, organize, you know, a night over in their place or say they'll do something or go to something and not show up. So then the other parent becomes more and more anxious because obviously the child has been hurt within these 
the circumstances. And then again, they'll say, oh, well, I was there and, you know, they didn't answer the door or I was there and you didn't, see, you know, so it can continue that way as well afterwards. And it's also, you know, unfortunately, kids are used sometimes in these circumstances and where they question what's right and what's real and what's wrong, which is incredibly painful and sad to see, but it's, it, it's part of the personality that does this in the first place. Anyways, you know, being the person in control is the most important thing. One more thing before you go. It was wonderful to speak with Roshan, and I'm very glad that you're going to be able to hear more of her conversation with me next week. Next time we talk, we delve into a variety of other subjects, including cultural differences and ownership mentality, victim blaming, and parental alienation. I was so struck by how she was not only doing something so important for Ireland, but for the rest of the world. She has alerted people to a huge problem in a way that people really don't understand it. She's also done a lot of research about issues we are facing all over the world and statistics and when it comes to coercive control and abusive relationships, how things are specifically in Ireland and how much the clock has been set back in the United States over the last year or so. If you are not in these situations and don't work with people in these situations, or if you don't know of people in them, you might not have had any idea that there were now fewer safeguards than before in the U.S. And now, as we know that most people are quarantined or being told to stay home, there's been a severe rise in domestic abuse and child abuse cases, as people are not just sheltering at home, but instead having the experience of being basically imprisoned. On Twitter and Facebook and other sites, we at the podcast will be highlighting some of the ways people can reach out for help without alerting their abuser, some secret, some wonderful ways. And also, I suggest going online, checking out some of the other posts on Facebook and Twitter by others where they share ideas about ways that people have been getting the word out through neighbors, through food delivery people, through people on the phone, through pharmacists, if you're able to get to a pharmacy. Words and phrases that people who can help you have been instructed to listen for. It's a sad time when you need to do things surreptitiously and you have to somehow Take action to protect yourself and hope that you're able to protect yourself when you are not in a safe environment and the city or state or country around you is not affording you nearly enough protection. Roshan talked about the idea of coercive control as well. And it is a term that we've discussed here on the podcast with other guests, but it's something that many people do not take seriously. Very often with coercive control, there are no obvious signs of abuse. So friends and family and even law enforcement officials and others who are mandated reporters like teachers and nurses and so forth might not know that something is tremendously wrong because nothing is clearly evident. 
while this is true in some situations in most where there is coercive control, there's not necessarily blood or bruises or malnourishment and the things you will be looking for to try to get somebody accurate assessment are often invisible and amorphous. That's also why people in these situations don't often report them because they feel like they're not going to be believed. They also are not sure how they got into this situation because it's not something that they had kind of willingly gotten into. There is an interesting quote about the fact that this is something that happens gradually to a person over time where they suddenly find themselves in a situation that has taken over their mind and their lives and their psyche and their confidence before they ever quite knew what was happening. It's a quote by Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas, and it says, As nightfall does not come at once, neither does oppression. In both instances, there is a twilight when everything remains seemingly unchanged. I come across that a lot with my clients in my work who were fairly sure that even though things didn't feel quite right, that things were just sort of okay, not really changing, again, because the changes and the methods of control were so insidious and gradual. So it's important not only for people in these situations to learn how to describe what's happening to others, to have the words to be able to say what is happening to them and how they feel that they are going mad or losing themselves, a sense of self, who they are or who they were, or they feel imprisoned or no longer have confidence, or they feel scared all the time, and they're not sure always why. They know every day that they should leave at some point, but somehow don't. And they're also not sure why, because it has been so subtle, so manipulative, so kind of hidden in the shadows. But it's also important that those who care for others who are in these relationships, where they sense something is off, something has changed about the person they love, but they can't quite put their finger on it, it's important for them to be able to make themselves available to be able to say to the person in that situation, okay, I don't know what's happening and I don't have to ask you questions unless you want me to. And I won't be disappointed if you don't want to open up to me or if you come out of this for a little while and go back because you weren't quite ready or brave enough to say out loud in, to anyone really that something bad was happening or brave enough to stay out in the world, out of the realm of your controller quite yet. And I won't grill you about why you are staying in a bad situation or why you have stayed, why you're doing this to yourself. Instead, you actually have the chance to provide someone with the biggest and most relieving gift of all, which is the possibility of being believed. If somebody says, well, I'm thinking I need to possibly get out of a relationship, but I know the person I'm with is someone who everyone seems to think is wonderful. And you, as the person responding to that, say something like, oh, but they are so wonderful, and they're so wonderful to you, and they've provided you with such a good life, or they seem so loving, and you're lucky to be with them. Or, well, you can't leave them. They're the parent of your child, and your child needs parents. And 
You just need to be, I guess, more accepting of their strong personalities. Or you need to really be able to kind of see them for how wonderful they are, and maybe you're being overly sensitive. Or you need to be able to just stay cool when they're having their temperamental personality because the good outweighs the bad. Or being practical. Where would you go? And could you really support yourself on your own? And could you support your child on your own? And people have been through worse situations, so you kind of need to suck it up. Well, those comments sometimes, at the very least, are dismissive and will probably keep that person from ever really wanting to approach you again and talk to you again about this. But those comments also, at the very most, can be a nail in the coffin. So be careful before you jump into responding with kind of pithy hallmark statements. That's all okay. Everything's okay. It will all be okay. Or an encouraging remark about sticking it out. Or a phrase that shows you don't think this person is making a wise decision, a good practical decision based on the information that you know, which is, of course, not all the information because you really don't know what's happening behind the scenes. And that you think they're making a bad decision for their children when you don't know what's happening again behind closed doors to them or to their children. Try not to respond by telling them that they need to do something, that they need to feel something, that they need to look at it differently, that they need to somehow listen to your advice about how to proceed. Instead of you talking about them, talk about you. Say something like, I am someone who will listen to you. I will pay attention to what you're trying to tell me. I won't judge. I will be there. And say that you'll do everything you can once you have kind of more information about what's going on to see how much you can help them along their journey and that you will hold their hand either kind of literally or figuratively along this path that they need to take for their own health and safety. Again, even if you might not know the whole story because they haven't felt comfortable sharing it with you yet. Many people in these situations have been taught very strictly to keep the things behind closed doors a secret, so it's hard for them to start sharing them. And you want to be able to understand that if a person has come to you to talk to you about what's happening, they've probably also delayed. This isn't something that has just started bothering them. It could have been bothering them already, for weeks or months or years. And so you don't want to burden them further by reminding them that the next steps are going to be overwhelming and probably ones that they don't want to take the risk of having to accomplish, so they might as well just stay. None of those things matter in that moment. And while you think you're being helpful, think of your words as concrete. And I don't mean concrete, meaning absolute. Think of your words as concrete that is being poured onto the feet of the person you love. And they will feel stuck and weighted down and hopeless. And they'll feel overwhelmed and, most importantly, alone. And will go back to the decision they've probably 
have come back to many times before that no matter how awful it is, yeah, my loved one is probably right. It's probably best just to stay, and it's best for me to think about how I can change. You, as the listener, play a fundamental role when someone comes to you and you can really blow it by coming across like you know better when you don't know really anything at all. Well, at least not about their situation to the degree that they know about their situation. And the truth is, if you respond by shutting them down, you will actually never know all of it because you have given them the impression, the message, that they shouldn't waste their time and bother to tell you because you've already decided. You've already made a decision about their life without the facts, and then you will stay in the dark, and they will stay where they are, and that will be such a shame. And please know, like I've said before, you as the listener don't have to have just the right thing to say. You don't have to somehow pull the wisdom of the ages. In those moments, you just need to say, I'm here. Talk to you next week. I'm excited to say that this podcast is now available on additional platforms. If you want to listen to Indoctrination, it's available for download on the NPR Radio Public app, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. We now have a big library of content that you can access with any donation. And subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.